Well, good morning. It is great to see you this morning. Well, this morning, the title of the message is A Tale of Two Cities. And before you start thinking I'm going into Alexander Dumas and it was the best of days and the worst of days, um, the cities we're going to look at this morning are found in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at two cities this morning. One city that was experienced growth and expansion of the church and the other city that was experiencing persecution and opposition to the church. The city that was experienced growth was Antioch, and we read about this in Acts 11. And the city being persecuted was Jerusalem, and we'll read about their persecution and what was taking place there in Acts 12. This morning we're going to look at these two cities and see the effect of the gospel outworked in these two different cities. So we're going to turn, if you turn to Acts 11... The first city we're going to look at is Antioch. Last week we heard about the gospel reaching a God-fearing Gentile by the name of Cornelius. This week we're going to look at the gospel reaching a pagan Gentile city called Antioch. Just so to help us as we walk through this, this, um, uh, this, this chapter, I've got three points for each city. You have to have three points for every, every message. Four is not, just three. The birth of the Antioch church, the growth of the Antioch church, and the generosity of the Antioch church. So first of all, let's look at the birth of the Antioch church. We find that in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus And Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Here we see as a result of the persecution that we looked at a number of weeks ago, the persecution of Stephen, the the believers were scattered. They were scattered throughout the region as far as the island of Cyprus, the coast of Phoenicia, which is kind of down on the side of the um, Mediterranean, and Antioch. Antioch at that time was one of the three great cities, the others being Rome and Alexandria. And it was a city that uh, had many different cultures. It was kind of a really mixed bag. It had Greek, it had Roman, it had Jews, it had Arabs and Persian. It was, it was a pagan city with many, many different kind of cultures all into this, this melting pot. And it would be if we talked about cities of, the, of, of today, and I hope there's nobody from America here, but we kind of liken it to Las Vegas. Oh, Kate is. Sorry, Kate. But you're from Virginia, so Virginia's good. But Las Vegas, it would be likened to Las Vegas of, of today. It was rife with all kinds of immorality. They worshipped the goddess Daphne and the priestesses of the, of, of the, the temple that they had were, were basically prostitutes. It was an immoral city. In fact, throughout the world, the morals of Daphne became a euphemism for depravity. It was that bad. Into this immoral, immoral depraved city, God started to use these scattered believers to spread the gospel and establish a church in Antioch. 
a church that will become a very significant church. As we walk through the rest of Acts, we will see the significance of this church, how important it was. It became a hub for the expansion of the gospel worldwide. This pagan Gentile church, which was started by persecuted believers, not by the apostles, no apostles, no recognized person at that time, had started this church, but this church was now experiencing growth. So we're going to look on to verse 22 and look at now the the growth of the Antioch church. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Verse 22, and as a result of this growth... This growth came to the ears of the the, the apostles in Jerusalem. And scholars claim that the way Luke writes, he writes this um, when he came and saw the grace, uh, the ears of the church in Jerusalem, uh, they they would say it it suggests a concern and disapproval and a, a worry about how this pagan city would have a church that was growing without any apostle leading. And so they sent Barnabas. Barnabas, just the right man for the job. Then Barnabas to go and check it out. Go and check out. We've heard all these reports. This, this church growing. This, this pagan city. No apostles have gone there and planted it. Nobody sort of recognized in the, the Christian world that that team had gone. And yet this church was being established. Go and check it out. Check it out whether it was genuine. Check it out whether there were all sorts of wonderful, weird and wonderful uh, truths and beliefs that were being preached. And Barnabas who himself was a Greek-speaking Jew... And he had a wonderful, we've already touched on Barnabas earlier on in Acts, but he, he was known as the son of encouragement. That was his name, son of encouragement. And he was just the right man to send to Antioch. He didn't need a Peter who would perhaps go in there and check it out, get rid of this, do this, or some of the other apostles with their, their, their characteristics and their personalities. This was a man full of grace and truth and the Holy Spirit, and he was an encourager. You see, this it was the right man for the job because it was Saul. When, when, uh, when Saul was converted, the, the apostles in Jerusalem, they, they questioned it. They were frightened. They were concerned about whether this was genuine and whether Saul was just trying to get in and into the inner sanctum, as it were, and then, and then uh, put them to death or send them to prison or whatever. But it was Barnabas who took Saul to the apostles when they were questioning his salvation and defended him. This was the type of man that was being sent to Antioch. People who were pagans, not God-fearers, who were coming to believe in Jesus. The gospel was now reaching pagans. These idol worshippers, the, the immoral, were now being converted to Christ and believing the word of God. So what better man to represent the questioning apostles, and go to Antioch and check out what was really going on. Someone who was an encourager. 
Church in Antioch, as I said, was not started by apostles. So I'm pretty sure there would be a lot of issues in there. A lot of, a lot of kind of things that were going on that needed help and correction. But what did we read of Barnabas? When Barnabas went there, he saw the evidences of grace in the church and was glad. He saw the evidences of grace. I'm sure there was a lot of things going on. Hadn't been really taught by recognized preachers or teachers, but he saw evidence of the grace of God and he was glad. Barnabas saw the grace of God in these believers. He's quick to see God's work in their life rather than spotting the blemishes and all their faults and failings. I don't know about you, but I find I'm always challenged on this. I'm always challenged. I find I could spot the blemishes much quicker than I spot the evidences of grace. I don't know whether you find that as well. Sometimes you can so easily see what's wrong rather than seeing where God is at work in people's lives. Barnabas so himself recognised as he went to Antioch, he recognised his own weakness. He was an encourager. He could be around the church, encouraging the church, but he recognised his need of help. He recognised he needed someone to come and teach this church who had a real gift of teaching. So as we read here, he, sent, he went to Tarsus and found Saul. Saul had probably been in Tarsus for the last eight to ten years since his conversion, since he was in Jerusalem. He'd probably been there that sort of length of time. And probably most of the things that we read about Paul, or who later became Paul, uh, about his beatings and whatever, probably took place there. Because we don't read it elsewhere. Some of them we do, but some we don't. But he went to Tarsus, and he asked if he would go back with him to Antioch. He recognized Barnabas, that Saul would be more gifted to teach this church. See, another, another side of Bar- Barnabas, full of faith, full of Holy Spirit, s- sees evidences of grace. But what do we also see here? A man of humility. A man who's, who's recognizing his own limitations. He couldn't do it all. How often do we find that we think we can do it all? You know, God, God made us in such a way, God has established his church in such a way that no one person's got it all. We need each other. And Barnabas recognized he needed Saul to help him. He was a man of humility. Just a wonderful example of how each of us should soberly assess our gifts, to lay our gifts down so that others can pick it up, others can recognize, assess our gifting and our limitations. This church in Antioch, was to become a major missionary center. I would send out many missionaries. And so in the providence of God, it required someone who would give this church sound teaching so that a solid base was built for expansion and for the future. So we read here for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul taught a great number of people. And this is where Saul, later to be called Paul, started his ministry. And it's interesting here to note that it's here in Antioch that the disciples, the believers, were first called Christians. And it's interesting who called them Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians. Because they were Jews, they they couldn't do that because Christ meant Messiah. It would almost be blasphemous to them to claim that for themselves. But it was the the pagans, it was the people in the city, the non-believers 
who called them Christians. Why? Because they saw that they follow Christ. They saw follow Christ in his teaching, and they saw follow Christ in their godliness. They're the ones who called them Christians. To the pagans, this was not an issue to talk about them being Christians. So we see that not only Barnabas saw evidences of grace in the city, but it was also the unbelievers who saw that these people, these believers, were reflecting Christ and manifesting Christ-like attitudes. You know, I kind of wonder, I started to ask myself the question, I wonder what people would call, that's a dangerous question to throw out, what people would call me. Um, but I meant, would they call me a Christian because I just say I'm a Christian? Because I'm a pastor? Because I go to church on a Sunday? Because I work in a church office? And the same goes for all of us. Or would they call me a Christian because of what they see in my life? It was what they saw in the lives of these people that caused them to give them this name. Question for me is the question for all of us is Is Jesus just my Savior or is He my Savior and my Lord? Am I following Him? Is it not just somebody who I recognize as paid for my sins, but somebody I want to follow? I want to be Christ like. Then we come on to the third thing the generosity of the Antioch church. We see this in verses 27 to 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Luke concludes this tale of Antioch this, what he wants to talk about Antioch, he concludes it with a, uh, this, chat, this part of the chapter with the generosity of these people, how the gospel had already affected them. He says by recalling that one of the apostles who came down from Jerusalem, I kind of think it's a bit strange when you say down from Jerusalem because Antioch's north of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's higher up, so it's probably the reason why they said down. But if you look on a map, you'll find Antioch is higher, north of Jerusalem, but that's probably the reason. But he prophesied there'd be a famine over the world. The gospel had so affected these people's hearts and pockets in response to this need. The church in Antioch collected money according to their ability and sent a gift to Jerusalem with Saul and Barnabas. And theologians and commentators say this was probably the first charitable act of this nature in all recorded history of one race of people collecting money to help another race of people. This was probably the first time. The gospel had brought about a generosity in these early Christians. And Luke was not concerned about the fulfillment of the prophecy. He doesn't go on to talk about the fulfillment of that. In fact, there is no recorded famine at that time. No, he wanted to reveal the generosity of this fledgling church. That's what he was concerned about. He wanted to convey that to us 2,000 years on. And the effect of the gospel in our hearts is going to be reflected in our generosity or otherwise. And to see how much the gospel has affected us, it'll affect our generosity. 
And then having done this, in chapter 12, Luke now draws our attention away from the growth of the church in Antioch and now turns our attention to the growth of persecution of the saints in Jerusalem. The word of God was spreading. And Luke is about to write Paul's first missionary journey. We go into chapter 13. But first he has to record a serious setback in Jerusalem. And so the second city we're going to look at, our tale of two cities this morning, is Jerusalem. Again, three points. Herod's plot, Herod's defeat, and Herod's death. So let's look at Herod's plot, verses 1 to 4. Of chapter 12 now we're in. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out of the temple. Sorry, bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Herod, here strongly persecuting the church, he had James, the brother of John, executed. And he noticed that this execution of James pleased the Jews. It pleased them. And Herod is a man-pleaser. What we see about him, he's, he's into himself. and He's seen the effect of the, on the people. And as a result of James' execution, he now decides to arrest Peter with the intention of killing him too. Herod had become a blatant opponent of the church and the work of God. But at the time Peter was arrested, they were celebrating the Feast of Passover. And so he had to wait. They couldn't execute him during the feast. They had to wait until the feast had finished before they could execute Peter. So during this feast, Peter, who was chained in prison guards, chained two prison guards, with guards watching over him, four groups, four groups of four, they were really worried about this guy escaping. Who was going to let him get out? But God intervenes and spoils Herod's plan. And then on the very night, Before Peter was executed, God brings about a miraculous rescue and ruins Herod's plan. So let's go to verse 5 now, through to 19, and see Herod's defeat. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out, and they went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now, I'm sure that the Lord has sent 
his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter, left out there still, Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. That's the other James, the brother of, of, of Jesus. Then he departed and went to another place. And when day came, there was no little disturbance amongst the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is an incredible scene. Two kind of pictures here we have. We have Peter sleeping soundly, sleeping soundly in prison the night before he was going to be executed. I wonder what you'd be like. <laughs> would you be awake praying? What would you be doing? Would you be awake fretting, worried or concerned? But he was clearly at peace. We know he was sound asleep because when the angel came, the angel had to strike him to wake him up. Even though when the angel came, there was light all around. He had woken up. He had to, he had to tap him or knock him. To strike him on his side to wake him up. And Peter must have been in quite a daze. I, I think so. Can we read into it? Because the, the, the angel had to instruct him what to do. You know, get up, put your shoes on, put a cloak on, put your clothes on. You know, not normally does a man of that age need to be instructed. Now, of those of you who've got young children, you would need to do that, but not normally. He must have been in a real daze, you know. He hadn't had his coffee in the morning yet, so he's still kind of in a bit of a, a tiz. But as he stood, the chains that bound him to the two soldiers fell off. And then it says that Luke tells us that he followed the angel out of prison. And Peter was still not sure what was really happening. Was it just a vision? And then he went out of prison and then they came to the gate that led him into the city. See, people today think that automatic doors, I think of the current, there was an automatic door back there. Nobody had to open it. God opened that door. Automatic. And they walked through into the city, and then the angel left him. It seems now that Peter came to his senses and was starting to question himself. He said, now, now I am sure, I'm sure that God sent an angel. It's kind of like he said it in a way that was still, you know, wondering about what had really taken place. It was interesting, a few months back in our, in our men's discipleship with the guys, we were going through a study of angels, and... Um, it was interesting. We, we started to talk at the end of the, the, uh, the Grudem session about our own experiences. And it was actually interesting that a number of us, a number of us had had experiences where, you know, 
Something happened that's still not explained. I know uh, Thomas had an experience on the motorway. Jude and I have had two experiences that we just cannot explain naturally. Unbelievable. And you think, was that an angel? Was that an angel? Angels are still active. Angels are still... Now it gets into the twilight zone a bit here, but, but angels are still active. We had a situation, June and I, where we were, we were in, um, as I say, a couple of particular situations, but this one, we were in uh, Dublin, and I was there on business, and I'd taken the girls with, with, with us, and we went into this uh, restaurant for an evening meal, and June had left her bag in the car. And we got back to the car, the car was broken into, the window smashed, and a bag was gone. And we realized that in the bag was the doors to our house. And so about three days later, when we got got back, uh, this is when we were um, still in, in Slough, and we got back to uh, the place where we lived, and I went straight along to the police station and said, look, we don't have keys to get in our house. You know, what should we do? Don't we get arrested because we're breaking into this house? They said, well, there's nothing much we can do. You just have to break the window. Now, our door was both a chub lock and a yell lock. We had both, and I knew I'd, I knew I'd lock them. And as I drove up the drive, our front door was slightly open. I said, you know, well, is there somebody in there? Somebody broken in? Had they got our keys and flown over from Dublin and raided our house? I didn't know what was going on. So I said, stay in the car. I'll go in. (laughs) Try to be brave. I'll go in and have a look. Everything was fine. Nothing at all. Now, I know that I turned the chub lock and I know the yell lock. And I had no idea this door was open for us to walk in. Now, you make your own decision. But it was interesting because as we said that, a number of the guys, someone in this room this morning said they had started to recall experiences which just didn't have, didn't have an explanation. So I think there are still angels. I think in many of our inter- interventions, uh, I mean, I heard of one this the other day and I wondered about as well. Um, angels come to rescue us. Angels are there. But now, going back to the story of Peter, as soon as he realised he was freed, he, he made his way to John Mark's house where he knew his friends would be praying. And in verse 5, we see that the church was making earnest prayers. They weren't just praying, they were earnest prayers for Peter. John Mark's family were evidently wealthy and so they had a large house where lots of people were gathered praying for Peter. I kind of wonder what they were praying for Peter for. Maybe some of them were praying that Peter would have the courage to die bravely, die well. Others may have been praying that God will give him peace as he awaits his death. Maybe some prayed that like Stephen, his death would be a witness to those around him it may have only been a few who dared to pray but God would deliver Peter just like God delivered Daniel from the lions now I say this because at this point we see in our story and relating this a story of confusion and humour it's quite a humorous story this Peter knocks at the door A young girl called Rhoda comes to the door 
opens the hatch to see who's, who's knocking. Oh, it's Peter. I'll go and tell those who are praying for, praying for Peter. Don't be silly. I mean, she didn't open the door for him and just closed the hatch and off she went. And she keeps going back. It's Peter. It's Peter at the door. Don't be silly. Don't be silly. Let us get... Don't interrupt us. We're praying for Peter. Please don't get in the way. We, we need to pray for Peter at this time. What a crazy situation. <laughs> but joyfully wonderful. They said she's out of her mind. She's out of her mind. And that's why I wonder really what, what, what they were praying for. Because perhaps, perhaps some of them hadn't really believed that God would deliver him from the prison. Perhaps it was some of these other things. We don't know. But Peter, outside, and as he answered to the prayers, with those inside telling Rhoda to be quiet so that we can continue to pray for him. And then Luke says that when they finally saw him, they were amazed. They were amazed, which is wonderful. Kent Hughes says, what is amazing is our slowness very often to believe God's ability and willingness to answer our prayers. Our slowness to believe God's ability and willingness. I think many of us here this morning would all recognize God's ability. But do we recognize that often his willingness to answer our prayers? James 4 verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. And then in, in chapter 5, James says, goes on to say, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, I just want to give testimony this morning that Matt and I in recent weeks have anointed two people with oil and both of them healed. That's up to them if they want to give their, share a testimony. They know who they are. And sometimes, you know, it's a, our faith needs some works. And the works is, I'm going to ask. It's not for the pastor to say, oh, you're sick. I'll pray for you. It's not my faith. It's, it's the faith, your faith. Your faith. Ask. It's a demonstration of faith and trust in God when you come out and be proactive. I think so often, and, I, and I'm the same, same. We can be very kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not kind of, kind of reacting to something, but just accepting, oh yeah, and I'll pray. Rather than saying, no, I'm looking to God. I'm going to pray. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. How often do we pray fervently for some situation or somebody just like these believers were? And then when the answer comes, we're astonished. Kent Hughes goes on to say, it's awesome to truly believe that regardless of circumstances, God can deliver us anytime he chooses. It is transforming to truly believe in the ministry of angels. It is life-changing to pray fervently. They prayed fervently and God answered their prayers. Then finally we come into Herod's death, verses 20 to 24. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. 
And the people were shouting the voice of God, the voice of God and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and breathed his last. But the word of God, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod, in executing James and imprisoning Peter with a view to killing him, was a, just like Saul, a fierce opponent of the church and the spread of gospel. But unlike Paul, Saul, he was motivated, Saul was motivated by religious zeal. Herod was motivated by the desire to be praised. Well, after Peter's release, as Herod would see it, Herod had all the guards put to death. And then he left Judea and went to Caesarea. And there he wanted to impress the people. He put on his royal robes and gave a speech to the people. And in verse 21, we read that the people following his speech were start stating that this is the voice of God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory. Herod was a man who wanted all the glory to himself. He was eaten by worms and died. And that's a lesson, I think, for all of us. We so don't we need to be careful that in everything God gets the glory. God gets the glory. He's the one who deserves all the glory. So often we can have a temptation to, to take a little bit of glory to ourselves. We want to add our name into the thing, add our, our situation into it. We want a bit of the glory. When I prayed, this happened. When I did this, this happened. You know, and the emphasis can be on when I, I, I. And it's so easy for us to take some of the glory to ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, Why, What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There isn't anything that we have of any of us sitting in this room this morning that has not come from God, not come via the grace of God because we didn't deserve it. But it's through his grace that we have it. There's nothing. So why, if we understand that and we recognize that, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, if God gave it to us, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This man gloried, gloried in his notoriety, not giving God the glory. And I would encourage us to let us not boast, let us not boast in our church. Let us not boast in our ministry. Let us not boast in our gifts and all that we have. In our efforts, all the things that we do. But be like Paul when he says in Galatians, but far be it for me to boast, except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let Jesus be the one we boast about. And it's so easy. I do it. We all do it. We all tend to want to take something onto ourselves. Boasting in Christ. Finally, just to say here, John Stott writes this. I, I love this. He says, at the beginning of chapter uh, 12, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he himself is struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with 
Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. God turned the whole situation around. Just in a few short verses we read of this, this incident, this, this situation where God had turned it all around. And with all that was taking place in Jerusalem and with the establishing of the first Gentile God uh, church, the word of God was increasing and multiplying. A tale of two cities. One experiencing growth, the other persecution. But both of them experiencing the ongoing growth of the gospel. I just have three questions that I'd like to ask us this morning. In Antioch, we saw that grace abounded. Question, do I? I'd like you to ask this for yourself. Do I spot the blemishes more than the evidence of grace? In Jerusalem, their prayer was fervent. Do I pray fervently? Are my prayers fervent? Spurgeon says, some brethren, some brethren pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight and not by length. And he goes on to say, Beloved, what a different view of prayer God has from that which men think to be the correct one. To him, fine language is as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, but a groan, a groan, has music in it. I want to pray more fervently. I don't want to just pray more fervently just because I, I just want more answers, but I want to pray more. I want to be a person who will pray fervently. And then finally, recognition that in all that we do, it's God who gets the glory. Do I take the glory to myself or do I hand it all back to God? When somebody, I remember asking a friend of mine years ago, when somebody comes and says something good to you, you think, sometimes we don't know what to say, do we? Oh, you did such and such. You know, now and again happens, but um, you did such and such. What do you say? And he said to me, I've done this from then on. He said, thank you, and then turn it to God in your heart. Thank you. It's only with grace. It's only because of what God has done. Psalm 115, verse 1 says, Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. Let's pray. As we're in this attitude of prayer, I'd like us to spend a few moments just asking yourself these three questions. The great, great danger with these sort of questions is that we like to, like to think of others. I hope in the room that person's thinking this question. <laughs> I hope they're getting the point. Really, God is speaking to us individually. For what we've, the principles that we can see here, as we've constantly said, Acts is not normative, but we can see the principles. Am I a person who's easy to spot blemishes more than evidence of grace? Are my prayers just going through? A process, if you like. Are they really fervent? Do they have weight to them? Do they have a groan to them? And am I guilty of taking the glory to myself that belongs to God? Just spend a few moments. And if you find, for me, it would be all three. 
but whether it's all three or one or two, just take it to the Lord now, privately in prayer. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for grace to help you. Father, thank you for the example we see in Barnabas, a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, but a man who saw the evidences of grace and was glad. Thank you, Lord, for his humility that helped along with Saul later become Paul a church that spread out to so many parts of the known world at that time. Thank you for their grace. Thank you for their generosity as a people. Lord, thank you for the example that we see in how the Christians were dealing with their persecution in Jerusalem. When Peter was put in prison, they prayed fervently. Lord, I pray that we will be a people of fervent prayer. Lord, help us to understand what that really means. Father, if we're not really sure this morning what that means, help us to go home and study it. Study it in your word and study it through examples. Father, let us be a people that give you all the glory all the glory Lord forgive us when we take glory to ourselves where we try and own something that you have so clearly done thank you for your grace thank you for the evidences of grace that Lord we see in one another in this room this morning thank you for the many ways many many ways that we see your hand at work in the lives of people in this church. Lord, may we continue to grow in that. Lord, may we bow the knee daily to King Jesus. Would we daily give God all the glory because he's worthy of it all. In Jesus' name.